0: This call is being recorded. Hello and welcome to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. We have as our guest today, Mr. John Farrell who is the author of The Clock and the Camshaft, subtitled Other Medieval Inventions We Still Can't Live Without. John Farrell, are you there?
1: I'm right here. So happy to be on the show. Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, it's my pleasure. I'm interested in you sharing with what I've been going to school on over the last hour or two. Um, only that it's very different, and people like that very different stuff. Um, I do. I hope they do as well. Um, Me too. Now, I'm thinking about, let's see, what did I write down next? The the thing that stood out most of all, um, I'm going to say you wrote this book for your mother, and I think that's what it says.
1: Yes, that's right, yes.
0: Please explain.
1: Uh, well, robbery. and I'm happy. I'm uh, happy that uh, she lived long enough to see the book. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> um, great. Yes, yeah. Um, no, my mother's been one of my uh, biggest supporters uh, in my writing life, and um, you know was the earliest uh, at getting me to read. Um, in fact, I still have some of the first books she bought for me, with her little dedication scribbled in the front page. Um, so yes, I dedicated that. My first book I dedicated to my wife, and this uh, second book I dedicated to my mom.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, how long did it take you to determine you were going to write another book?
1: After the first one, um, actually, I had this idea. I'm kind of embarrassed to say how long ago, and put together a proposal, and um, spent, you know, my agent and I spent, you know, several years actually shopping it around, and we had a few close calls. Uh, That didn't quite pan out. And uh, I was actually starting to give up on it and think about a new book idea um, when Prometheus uh, called and said, yeah, we're definitely interested in this. And and they they gave me a contract to write the book um, in short order.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, I I did that. I'm an author myself. And
1: you know uh, how it goes. Yeah,
0: I know. how. Well, I self-published. Oh, good. uh, and I didn't have a clue about what was supposed to happen once the book was printed. I had I had no marketing, I had no advertising, I had zippo. So I've been struggling to cry and and get my head above the water, just so that I can maybe do a better job the next time I go around.
1: Interesting. Yeah. No. So uh, even in mainstream publishing, there's very little. Authors have to shoulder a lot more of, you know, the marketing themselves um, from most books, you know, unless you're Stephen King or Neal Stephenson, um, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of uh, – you have to be, you know, think on your feet, um, and uh, which is challenging because, you know, some of us, uh, you, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd just stay home and write. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's you know, an the easy
1: way. Yeah, you know, the kind <laughs> of glamorous idea of the author who just writes the book and then, you know, lives their quiet life and doesn't have to, you know – market or do book readings or book signings and stuff like that. You really do need to learn how to sell, um, which can exactly. be um, intimidating.
0: <laughs> and, and also very tedious. I find
1: yes. It. Yes.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm looking here at the uh, at your first book, and it's the author, you, The Day Without Yesterday, La Matre, Einstein, and the Birth of Modern Cosmology. That's quite a title there.
1: Yes, yes, that was uh, uh, an interesting story, and I thought uh, an overlooked story in um, the history of uh, 20th century uh, science was um, uh, Father LeMaitre, who was—he uh, basically came up with the what I call um, Big Bang 1.0, the first version of a Big Bang theory in the early mm-hmm. 1930s, um, mm-hmm. which was um, three to four decades before. The Big Bang Theory actually became accepted as you know the likely account of how the universe began, and um that was kind of um sort of known, but what i didn't know was all the other aspects of science that he was into, um which I discovered kind of by accident when i was I was doing an article on Einstein uh, and relativity uh it was published in salon, oh my God, like twenty years ago, and while mm-hmm. I was researching it i was I was looking at articles on Einstein and there were these Um, I think every five years there's a gathering of specialists in general relativity and they have a big conference and they put out a huge doorstopper of a book with everybody's papers and presentations. And um, that was on the shelf um, uh, at the library when I was looking for the other stuff. And I just pulled it out and found some interesting stuff. But then I noticed that there were three or four presentations by scientists about Lemaitre and I thought oh that's interesting because he was so long ago I wonder why and uh it turned out you know he was into uh, the mathematics that would lead to black holes um he was interested in um what uh like whether the universe would expand faster and accelerate which of course is now what uh, scientists believe and I just thought oh that guy's really he was you know he was in a lot Mm -hmm. he was really involved deeply at that time and um Um, And I I didn't forget about it It was in the back of my mind And when I was pitching my first I was actually trying to sell my first novel uh, To a publisher Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, we're not really doing uh, novels They're too risky Uh, Do you have any nonfiction ideas? And I just kind of popped back Hey, how about a bio about the priest Who did the Big Bang Theory? And he was like, yeah, great (laughs) So it was very serendipitous How that worked Mm -hmm.
0: out Mm -hmm. I understand that he was uh, friends with uh, Einstein Is that right?
1: Yes, yeah, he, uh, he met Einstein early on. Einstein was not uh too impressed with his idea. He didn't um he didn't buy it. So it took a few years to kind of win him over. Um mm-hmm. not so much to the big bang theory, but just to the the whole idea that the universe is expanding was also something Einstein resisted and um he was mm-hmm. um and, but once he once he kind of bought into lemaître's um cosmology uh they became uh, I, I wouldn't say great friends but they were very good colleagues together and they corresponded yes. and einstein yes. sponsored him for some science awards in belgium
0: well I, uh i was impressed and interesting that uh you know he was a priest
1: yes yeah it is fascinating because i think people are always fascinated by um faith and science and also Uh, The kind of stereotype that, you know, um, uh, most religious people wouldn't be, uh, I should say, you know, clerical people, priests, would not be um, uh, scientists at the same time. Although earlier in the history of science, um, back uh, at the time of Galileo, uh, uh, a lot of priests were scientists and very interesting scientists with um, all sorts of discoveries that have sort of been forgotten about, but I think are being rediscovered and more appreciated now.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, Let's get back to the clock and the camshaft. Sure. I um, I'm looking. I think it it turns out that my first question I wrote down before I looked at the list was the same as your first question. (laughs) What is the? And this is going to be for the benefit of my audience. What is on earth is a camshaft?
1: A camshaft is basically, it's like an axle with fins on it, and the fins um, the fins basically make uh, things happen. Um, so you start with, um, say, like a, a vertical water wheel, which is just turning, you know, kind of doing its thing. It's on an axle. The axle um, uh, turns um, uh, basically like a millstone. But then they started thinking, geez, we've got this water power. I wonder if we could... Uh, make some adjustments so that it could be do more than just grind grain. So you take that axle and you, um, you put fins or cams on it that are, that are protrusions. And then those spinning protrusions can be used to kind of power trip hammers to push them up and down and up and down. It's kind of tedious, but um, it beats having to, you know, grind grain by your, by, by your own hand. Um, and um, as they, started to work on this, they realized they could um do things like you know smash ore, they could um full cloth, they could um mash up elements to make paper. This was all kind of over the course of centuries, but um it was kind of like the basic um energy power uh, of the middle ages. Uh, that just drove all sorts of production, sawing wood, so you could build houses you uh, know eventually they could even saw stone, like in the building of the cathedrals and stuff like that so mm-hmm. um and to and to this day, I mean your car has a camshaft in it um that kind of controls the intake valve intake outtake valve of the car right. of the uh the engine, so it 's kind of one of those things that you know nobody knows who invented it. it probably wasn 't any one person that might have been you know uh a few people working together uh to solve a mm-hmm. problem. Um, But that became kind of the base uh, of um, uh, the medieval economy in terms of production. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I I settled for myself that the rational energy, excuse me, rotational energy into linear energy. That that, that one stuck with me. That one stuck with me. And then I also remembered that back when I was a a teenager with all kinds of, you know, cars and engines and things like that. Um, before I had to get married and, and get a job, those kind of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it, uh, it, it it's it's fascinating though how how many applications have, have you've discovered have come along and uh, groundbreaking discoveries. The same you know, as the uh, like you were mentioning, uh, Galileo. There was Copernicus, Kepler, Newton. Um all of these um were foundations of this revolution i guess was the uh, was the uh, brand on it
1: yes yeah, and i think I think in the middle ages they were um even in advance of the kind of intellectual revolution of Copernicus and Galileo, they just had a kind of um mechanical mindset um how would they approach a problem? Uh, and solve it, even though they didn't have the mathematics that we have, or that would later be invented by Galileo and Newton. And uh, and the mechanical clock is kind of uh, a good example of that. Um, it was, uh, again, it was probably invented by a couple of blacksmiths working with some millwrights, maybe, um, I'm guessing, at the instigation of a bishop who wanted... Um, not a clock initially. What they probably wanted was a way to automate the ringing of bells, you know, for prayer times uh, at the monastery or at the church. And they just thought, I think their ingenuity was okay. Well, we know how to use water power to drive mills, and we can even make windmills, so we know how to use wind power to derive energy. What if we could figure that, a way out to derive energy from gravity? Um, and so basically, you come up with um, again some axles, will hang a weight on it. And the problem was, how do you constrain that gravitational force so that I can spread out over hours and hours to like, uh, to run a clock or to run a machine that would ring the bells, say, at midnight or at 5 o'clock at you know, dawn uh, to remind the priest to get up without someone having to stay up all night and do it for them? And um, that must have been all you know, intuition, you know, blacksmiths and millwrights figuring out and tinkering and why don't we try this way it's not working it's running too fast or it's running too slow and Mm -hmm. all of that was done you know they didn't have any mathematics they had nothing like what you and i learned in in physics class you know principles of dynamics all of that would come later but they knew how to they knew in their minds how to kind of put it together um intuitively and Mm -hmm. uh and it's really ingenious when you think what an effect that the mechanical clock had on society ever afterwards. I mean, some people would say, yeah, we're now slaves to our clocks <laughs> and our iPhones <laughs> and all of our, you know, digital Absolutely. devices and stuff. But, um...
0: Well, I, I specifically underline this part, being the outgrowths of the legal revolution that was ignited by the popes determined to protect the church's autonomy – against the growing power of European monarchs.
1: Yes. So this is what uh, a more like a social invention, but that very much a kind of um, um, breakthrough isn't the right word, but it was a kind of a revolution, and it had all sorts of ramifications. So the popes needed – basically what they wanted to do was compile a systematic um, corpus of law that they could rely on to define their autonomy against, you know, in, the encroachments of kings and emperors and so forth. So they took the Roman the old Roman law, they took the of course the Bible was chief, they took the Bible, the commandments from the Bible. And then there were of course the local customs of, you know, the different kingdoms, you know, Germany, France, England. They had their kind of laws from, you know, age old whenever. And synthesize it into one body of law that they could use, canon law, is what the Church calls it, I think, for their internal purposes, and kind of push back against the encroachments of kings. And, uh, you know, the the example I use in the book was, of course, King Henry II and Thomas Beckett. You know, and, of course, Beckett ended up getting killed by the king's henchmen uh, because he was fighting for that very principle of, like, look, the Church is the Church, we have our own rules, you know, you don't interfere with that, and um, we're going to defend ourselves. Uh, and out of that kind of whole legal revolution uh, became the idea of, um, like, the corporation. You know, we think of corporations as, you know, big companies, you know, Apple, you know, banks and things like that. But right. in, in those days, any any group of individuals would come together. And I'm thinking of, like, guilds, you know, blacksmiths or, you know, bricklayers or whatever. They could come together and say, we're going to have a charter, and we're going to incorporate ourselves as an entity that's independent of all the members and uh and that was kind of a revolution at the time and uh it and then of course the universities did the same thing they started out as cathedral schools you know primarily geared towards educating you know future priests but then they as they expanded and grew bigger and bigger and drew students from all over Europe who wanted to learn more than just um you know theology or, uh, like science or whatever they could um they also adopted their own kind of charters to protect themselves um uh, in an ironic sense, from uh, the very people who founded the schools in the first place. In other words, um, the churches, uh, the bishops, if they got upset about, well, you're teaching a little too much Aristotle and some of these, you know, uh, Arab scientists that are being translated and brought over from Spain. Where you, it sounds a little, you know, we're not sure we want that to be taught. And the universities were like, back off. <laughs> we can do this because, mm-hmm. you know, this is what we do. I'm, I'm kind of generalizing this, but um, to answer your question, it's kind of. Another one of the ramifications of what initially uh, were just the popes thinking of, we need to come up with a system of law for our own protection. And then it had all these kind of, you know, uh, not side effects, but um, ramifications down through the centuries.
0: I noted the construction of cathedrals that dwarfed in size, size, even the buildings of the Roman Empire. But they also maximized the amount of natural light that could be allowed into churches. How do how would they regulate that? How would they?
1: Um... Well, that was that would that seems to have been the um, inspiration of a particular abbot who um, wanted the churches to be brighter because the, the old kind of Roman basilica model, the, the windows were small, so even during the daylight, uh, ch- churches were dim and kind of dark and needed a lot of candles. And as they wanted to expand the size of the buildings to fit more and more people. Um, they wanted to figure out, well, and this is right, right around the time when, you know, glass making and, and stained glass windows were all, also kind of being perfected. They wanted to have bigger windows with more light. The problem was the higher the building went, the more kind of dangerous it was to support them. So they basically invented what's called a side buttress, these kind of um, buttresses outside the church that would kind of protect and reinforce the walls, mm-hmm. the higher and higher and higher they went, um, but it's interesting that a primary kind of inspiration and motivation was we make these bigger because we want to get more light in. So the church is more cheerful and more kind of, and of course, colored light, but from stained glass, which was also considered um, inspirational in a religious sense.
0: Well, there's a, certainly a lot of history that tied in with all of this. It's um I don't know that it is a stretch to say that uh, we have medieval inventions to thank for the discovery of America.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I think we tend to think of um, Columbus as around the Renaissance or after the Middle Ages. But Mm -hmm. all of those kind of um, key inventions that allowed the Europeans to expand, to go further and further out in their voyages um, uh, came from the Middle Ages. You know, the... um, uh, well the first improvements in ships designs but the discovery of um uh the compass so that they could they could uh go out in the winter and not feel so kind of um uh blind at night um without stars if you had a compass and then improvements in um the way they built ships uh, too was um and I'm kind of generalizing but the romans sort of um built their ships from the outside in um and The medievals reversed it. They built them from the inside out. They would build like a skeleton of a ship first and then kind of enclose it and make them more solid. Um, Mm -hmm. And then they adopted something that the Romans actually had. I I thought it was actually invented in the Middle Ages, but apparently it was the Romans who first um, came up with the the idea of a Latin sail, uh, which is kind of a triangular extra sail that allows you to kind of maneuver the ship without having to resort to oars when you want to change direction in or against the wind. Uh, and so those things kind of combined, you know, again, kind of um, inspired them to go further and further and further afield um, and eventually um, uh, to America with Columbus.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I um, I was impressed by uh, this statement in terms of uh, um, Columbus really didn't appreciate how vast the oceans were, and he didn't realize there were two continents between him and India.
1: That's right That's yeah right. He, he might have not have gone out if he realized <laughs> yeah right. he thought it, yeah, he thought he was going to india and and discovered a whole <laughs> you know two whole continents
0: right 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 well the um uh, you know, we become accustomed to uh, ideas of of inventions and discoveries um, are they uh, is the transformation of that in terms of um, uh, just simple ingenuity, uh, or are we still dragging along in the past?
1: Oh, you mean like going forward, will we come up with something new? Mm-hmm. Um, I hope so. I'm a, I'm a big um, space buff, so I like to think that we're going to figure something out very soon about either fusion or something nuclear that are gonna, will allow us to create ships, maybe robot ships at first, that can just go much, much faster, so that we can either, you know, uh, start traveling around the solar system, even if it's just to send robot explorers and start thinking about um, what kind of, um, um, just like the old discoverers, what kind of ores or metals or, you know, is there anything on those planets that, you know, we could use uh, and bring back to Earth or bring back to the moon? Uh, Because it does feel like we're, right now, we're kind of up against this ceiling of, um, you can only uh, go so far and so fast with our current technology um i think i think at the best it would take six months to reach mars if you waited uh for the point the planets are closest together um and of course you're you're faced with all the uh the dangers that um would face humans trying to go on ships um, just Mm -hmm. because of the radiation and things like that so i I do wonder whether you know it's time whether we'll again have some kind of a breakthrough that will maybe um, it will be for the purposes of space travel, but then we'll have all sorts of ramifications for just improving life here on Earth. Maybe we'll discover mm-hmm. that technology that helps us to counterbalance the bad effects of climate change. Um,
0: mm-hmm. I was looking at the uh, uh, your contents, um, 10 chapters, all with interesting titles, and... Um, the one that got my eye first was The Great Escapement. Now, is that the chapter with Steve McQueen in it?
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was kind of having fun with that. Um, that's the chapter on the clock, uh, because um, the escapement mechanism is what uh, they referred to as uh, the device, the design uh, that they came up with to, um, uh, for a mechanical clock. And it was basically, um, uh, it's called a virgin of foliot, which, it, again, is a kind of a clever repurposing of stuff they already had. Um so the verge is like a hanging bar, but it's got cams on it, like a camshaft and one mm-hmm. at the top and one at the bottom, and its job is to basically go back and forth and inhibit uh the um the axle from just, you know, pl- you know, the weight plummeting the axle and going all the way to the floor. You need something to create that tick-tock, tick-tock, and um that's what it was, but and they called it an escapement mechanism or an escapement drive. Uh so that's where I kind of, you know, I riffed on that title, but yeah, one of my favorite movies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is mine too. Um, please tell our listeners how to find you, John.
1: Um, well, my book should be at, um, um, uh, I've been doing, you know, uh, surveying myself, but it's in Barnes and Noble. Um, they can order it. If they don't have it, you can certainly find it on Amazon and the audio book has just come out, which is also, uh, on, uh, an audible book, uh, on Amazon.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, it's uh yeah, you know, in bookstores now. Uh it's one thing is you might find it in the science technology section rather than uh the you know ancient medieval history section, which is where I would too often go looking for it and say, They don't have it here. And the guy was like, Yeah, we do have it. And then, you know, <laughs> oh, science mm-hmm. and technology. So right. that's sort of where they'll they'll put it if you go to Barnes and Noble.
0: Well, I want to thank you uh, again for um um uh, taking the time to be our guest today. You have thank you so much for having me on the show.: You have a very interesting book, and, um, and now that you told me it's on audible, I'm going to buy it.: Oh great, because I, <laughs> I love walk, I love a long walk and, and audible. That's how I yes. put them, the two together.:
1: Yes, it's excellent.
0: And I want to thank my listeners for tuning in to searching for integrity and uh, so long. And happy trails to all.